My name is Chris Vincent. I'm one of the elders here at Orchard. Dave has actually taken off the month of August for prep for the upcoming year. So this month, we got um, a few different speakers, myself included, uh, Bill Rattan and uh, Steve Matson, that will be up here just kind of doing the preaching while Dave prepares for the year coming up. So uh, it's my pleasure to bring this word this morning. The other thing, too, it's the first Sunday of the month, so we are doing communion. So that's why we don't have children's church. We're a one big classroom this morning of four-year-olds all the way up to whoever's the oldest. I won't say who. Um, it's always a challenge to try to keep the attention of such a wide age range, but I'm up for it. Um, but it's it's great, like the, the first Sundays. I always joke, um, I, I'm, I'm lucky to be doing this um, probably the right person to be doing this because I got three little kids, ages four, six, and eight. Um, I don't know what loud is anymore. Um, and so you're, you're probably out there and your kids are fidgeting and making noise. I, I don't care. Um, you know, I read books at a loud roar in my home. I'm good. I'm good. Um, and it, I always just like to say this, but, you know, your kids, we consider them blessings. And so we love that they're in here. We love that they get to watch us do communion and see what the adults do. And if they fidget, it's, it's okay. And if they get a little antsy, it's, it's fine. Because children really are a blessing. We're just so grateful to have them here. So I'm good. Um, this morning, we are going to be talking about, um, I, I literally made the title of this sermon, The Two Things I Want to Talk About, Pride and Dirt. Um, I'm terrible at sermon titles, but um, here we go with Pride and Dirt. And the story that we're going to actually be exploring this morning, it's found in 2 Kings uh, chapter 5. So I would encourage you to kind of go to, to there in your Bibles and just kind of follow along. We're going to trace this story through from the beginning all the way to the end. And again, the, the two big things that I'm trying to pull out this morning is really this idea of, of the pride of the person involved in the story. His name is Naaman. And at the very end, there's a very weird paragraph that talks about dirt. And I want to talk about what that is and why it's significant and um, why it's important. So let me do this. I'm going to kind of jump into the first verse and pull a couple things out. And um, we'll, we'll get into the verse, and I'm going to nerd out on you a little bit because um, some of the stuff I love. But right there in the very beginning, in verse 1, we jump into the story about Naaman, and we read that Naaman was a commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now, Aram, of course, is a, it's a rival nation to Israel. Um, if you could think about the map of where we are in modern times, where Israel is, um, where Aram is, is kind of towards the north, um, north east-ish. Um, it's one of the cities there is Damascus. Um, it's important to understand when we talk about Naaman, and he's a commander, and that he's from um, a kingdom called Aram, um, he is not an Israelite. He's not one of God's people. And so this is something that's meant to stick out right there in the very first verse. We're about to read a story about a man who is not an Israelite, but a Gentile or a foreigner. And in that 
that in itself is is interesting and you know something to take note of. We read that he was great man in the sight of his master, and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram, and he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy, and so we read there that that he is he's he's a, an amazing commander. He's from a foreign nation. And he has a skin disease caused leprosy, called leprosy. Read on there in verse 2 and 3. That a band of raiders from Aram had gone out and taken captive a young girl from Israel. And she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Now, this is where I want to nerd out on what leprosy is and why this is such a, a huge deal. Um, le- leprosy, if you don't know, it's, it's a skin disease. It's something that happens in your skin, and it starts to create nerve damage. It's, it's very, very bad um, when the disease runs its full course. Blindness happens, loss of feeling in the extremities. Um, you could do something where you're just walking, you don't even know you're injured yourself, and, and go from bad to worse. Um, today, leprosy actually is still around. Um, it actually has a different name nowadays. It's called Hansen's disease. Um, it's named Hansen because we kind of have discovered what leprosy really is and what cures it. So leprosy, it's actually a bacteria that gets on the skin and spreads throughout and causes all the damage that it does. And it was actually a, um, it was actually a physician in Norway that actually discovered what the nature of, of the disease was. And that it was bacterial in nature and that you could actually cure it using different kinds of antibiotics. Um, it, we're kind of like in a weird place now where it's very, very resistant to the antibiotics and if you get it nowadays, you got to get like a full-on treatment of like three or four different kinds of antibiotics. Um, it's curable, but it's after a year of all these antibiotics that the, the rash starts to clear up. And so um, it's still here. And even today, it's still a very serious disease. And so when we're talking about ancient times, biblical times, and we talk about leprosy, it's serious. And for, well, I'm going to show you in a moment, for, for everyone, it's, it's a death sentence. It's something that's eventually going to end with you losing the, the feelings in your hands and arms where you'll actually become blind um, and, and progression from there goes from bad to worse. The Bible has a lot to say about this disease. And we actually read in the book of Leviticus, there's a lot of, um, scripture dedicated towards what we do with skin disease, this uh, leprosy, how we're supposed to uh, treat it. And what's really interesting in Leviticus is that it actually calls out what you're supposed to do when we find out you got leprosy and it becomes cured. We read right here in Leviticus 1 through 4, uh, 14, 1 through 4. The Lord said to Moses, these are the regulations for any diseased person at the time of their ceremonial cleansing when they are brought to the priest. The priest is to go outside the camp and examine them. 
And if they've been healed of their defiling disease, the priest shall order that the two live clean birds and some cedar, scarlet yarn, and hyssop be brought for the person to be cleansed. The ordinance then continues on to describe what we do with the birds, what we do with the hyssop, what we do all these different things, the ceremony, the cleansing. It's quite a to-do and it's quite a process. But the Bible actually provides some verses on what we are to do when somebody is cleansed of leprosy. And this ordinance is, is kept, or at least observed or understood, all the way up to the times of Jesus. Because we read in Matthew what happens when somebody is actually, he actually cures somebody of leprosy. What does Jesus tell the man to do? A man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, can you make me clean? Jesus reached out his hand, touched the man. I am willing, he said. Be clean. Immediately he was cleansed of his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but do what? What Leviticus 14 tells us to do. Go, show yourself to the priests, offer the gift that Moses commanded. This is the Leviticus observation, and as a testimony to them. And so, so we have a lot that the Bible says about leprosy. We have a lot about what we're supposed to do. We know it's a very serious disease. We notice that it's, it's something that, that when it does get cured, there's a whole to-do on how we are to react to that and, and cleanse that person properly, um, not just from the disease, but ceremonially. Um, but the thing that's really fascinating about this story and how the Bible has so much to say about this, um, to me, is when we read Luke 4, 24. Um, and we get this insight about the disease. That there are many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed except for who? Just one guy. So we get all this scripture, all this biblical history on leprosy. How we're to, to basically react when it's healed. Um, what we're to do, and then we have an entire Old Testament history around leprosy, and who's the only guy that gets to enjoy being actually healed from the disease? It's just Naaman. And so here we have the only guy that at least the Bible acknowledges that has been cured of leprosy. And so um, Nerding out, I, this is just like you know bonus information, but you know this is some like the cool stuff for me in the Bible. When you see all these connections, you see the hyperlinks from old to new and back and forth. Um, and so this story is significant because why? Naaman's the only guy that we read in the Old Testament that actually is cured of his leprosy. And so we're going to kind of go through this story, but have that in the back of your mind that. And when we're looking at why this story is significant, why it's important, um, one, this guy is not an Israelite. He's a foreigner. Um, but number two, apparently this is the only guy throughout biblical history in the Old Testament that receives cleansing from, from the disease and is actually cured by God. So follow along with me. We're going to keep on going through the story. Let's read through verses 4 through 12. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means go, the king of Aram replied. 
I will send a letter to the king of Israel. And so Naaman left, taking with him, this is my favorite part of the verse, um, 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. Pack and for any trip, bring 10 sets of clothing with a ton of money, apparently. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I am sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. Now, it's good to know that when we talk about Israel and we talk about Aram, um, friends or not friends? Not friends. They do not like each other. They are they're at times in history at war. Um, at least at this point of biblical history, um, they are not on friendly terms. They are adversaries. And so here we see Naaman's going to the nation of Israel. He's being sent with, I assume, a lots of soldiers, lots of guards, ten sets of clothing, and a letter from the king of Aram to the king of Israel saying, I'm sending my guy to you for what purpose? To heal him of this disease that nobody has ever, ever been cured of. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why did this fellow send someone to me to be cured of his leprosy? See how he is trying to pick a quarrel with me. So how is the letter received when the king gets this letter from him? He's like, what, is this guy crazy? Like, what does he think I'm going to do here? And he's, he's got to be messing with me. He's got to be messing with me because there's nothing I can do with leprosy. He must be trying to pick a fight. Verse 8. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him his, this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the men come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So, Naaman went with his horses and chariots. Again, he didn't just come with ten sets of clothing. He came with his posse, his whole crew. And stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. And so here comes Naaman with the crew, with the gold, with the shekels, with the 10 sets of clothing. And he rolls up to Elisha's home and knocks on the door and Elisha doesn't even come to meet him. Instead, he sends a messenger to Naaman to give him what his instructions are to be healed. We read here in verse 11, Naaman's response. Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, 
better than all the waters of Israel. Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? And so he turned and went off in a rage. And so the, the point that Naaman's making here, by the way, is rights. When you look at the Jordan River, um, parts of it are cool. Parts of it feel very, I don't know, Genesee River-ish. Um, parts of it are, you know, muddy. Um, there's actually a lot of shallow parts to it, so it's not a mighty river. Um, and when you compare it to these particular rivers, um, these rivers in Damascus are, are much more massive, much more beautiful. Um, in fact, the region that they grow in, they're, they're much more lush um, with, with vegetation, and it's, it's very pretty where these rivers are up in Damascus. And so he's right. Elisha is asking him to bathe in dinky old dirty Jordan, and while back home in Damascus, there's some really, really nice rivers. And so he goes off in anger and, and just goes off in a rage. And right here, we have to pause and, and just observe something that, you know, there's a truth that you see here that's going on with Naaman. And, and that's really what pride can do to us. So think about what we've been reading through this story. This man has leprosy. He's been going through life, dreading this disease. He knows one day it's going to just all go south. I won't be able to see. I might not be able to walk. Um, I might be in extreme pain. Um, he is a man of immense power. Um, we kind of get a sense by the time we land in the scripture that he's really the number, number one guy in all of Aram. The king relies on him. Um, and, and looks to him for so many things. And, and he is so desperate to get this disease cured that he heard through his wife, who who's heard through a servant girl, that there's some guy in Israel, a nation that he doesn't like, a nation that he doesn't care for, has the ability to heal you of your leprosy. He packs up 10 clothings, um, dressing for the weather, dressing for the weather could be, I'm sure, and makes the trip all the way down to Israel. And now he's at the door of the man who can heal him. And he gets the instructions on how to be healed. All you got to do is this. Just go to the Jordan River, dunk yourself seven times, and you're golden. And what's his response? He's angry, he's upset, and he's offended that he would be asked to go into that dinky old river. And really what we see here is just what pride can do to us and what pride can actually impact you in your life, especially when it comes to your walk with God. The Bible has so much to say on just, you know, the dangers of pride. Um, Proverbs 11.2, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs does this a lot where it just kind of helps you weigh the two things of like the, the life lived with humility versus the life lived with pride. What does the life with humility look like? There's wisdom. There's receiving of something. Whereas when we come to pride, what do we see with that? Disgrace. Um, 
let me give you the laundry list, just a, just a sample and more. But the Bible, again, says so much about the dangers of pride. Again, in Proverbs, the fear of the, fear of the Lord teaches man wisdom, and humility comes before honor. Uh, Proverbs, again, before his downfall, a man's heart is what? Proud. Before his downfall comes pride. But humility comes before honor. Once more in Proverbs, a man's pride hangs, brings him low, but a man of lowly spirit gains honor. Um, in Isaiah, for this is what the high and lofty one says, he who lives forever, whose name is holy, I live in a high and holy place, but also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus himself said very famously, anyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And um, Peter himself in 1 Peter 5, humble yourselves therefore under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. So the Bible says a lot about pride, bad, humility, good, right? But this story here, I think, helps you understand why pride is bad and humility is good. And the thing that you see here in the story of 2 Kings is that here is the man with the cure to this thing that is just consuming your life. And because of your pride, you cannot receive it. And that is true in all of our lives. This is what pride does. It, it, it prevents you from being able to receive something from somebody else. When um, I was much, much earlier in my career doing this whole preaching thing, um, like in my 20s, I was terrible, um, by the way. And I always joke, the reason why um, I come here and you think I'm any sort of good is because I gave like 100 sermons at a different church that were terrible. And they're in the archive and we've burned the tape. And so now the only thing you know is like, you know, my body of work here. It's great. Um, it's a whole new Chris you don't even know about. So a long time ago, it was like when I was 25, 26, um, you know, pride abounds. And I think I know something, right? Because I read a book. I, you know, heard this story. And now I'm at this church and I'm giving a sermon on parenting. And um, I'm going to help this church figure out parenting. And this is a good seven years before I even, you know, had any kind of children in my life. And so I gave this sermon, and to my credit, it's filled with truth, but uh, not filled with any humility. And so I gave the sermon, I come off the stage, and um, there's this thing that, you know, if you've done this, you dread, where you take like two steps off, and you see the guy making a beeline for you, and you're just like, you know, you're just kind of like, hey, you know, kind of defensive, because I don't know if he's going to drop kick me or if he's going to say something nice. Um, but he comes right up to me, and he starts basically saying, that's really nice what you said, but none of that is going to actually work out that way. And he started telling me all these things. And what was I doing in my pride, thinking I did a great job? He was telling me really important things. And he was speaking, I think, really good truths 
not just on you know what it really means to be a parent, but the importance of having grace and mercy and understanding that plans are great, but children never go according to plan. Um, but it's okay. Um, I received none of that. And I think that's a great example of what pride can do. Naaman was there in Israel on the banks of the Jordan. And Elisha said, just go in there, dunk seven times, and you will be healed. But because of his pride, he could not receive that and said, went off angry. And the same is true for all of us in this room. There will be times when you will be across the, the table from somebody, next to somebody, talking to somebody, that will probably say the most important things you could ever hear, speak the most truth that you'll ever need to hear. But if you go into conversations with pride, if you go into those conversations looking to be exalted, then what will happen is very similar to Naaman. You will be living your life in a way where you cannot receive from people. You won't be able to receive from the Lord. You won't be able to receive from others. And, and it's important to understand this, this pride thing, um, it knows no age limit, unfortunately. Um, little kids in here, big kids in here, very, very old kids um, or adults or people in their twilight years. Um, wisdom comes from all sources, right? And the way that God speaks truth in your life can come from different places. And, you know, certainly for myself and in, in recognizing the importance of, of being humble and being in a place where I can receive from others. But it's true for other people in different age groups and different walks of life and different experiences. Um, having the humility to being prepared to receive something from God from a little child all the way up to somebody in their twilight years. The story that we see here in, in, in 2 Kings 5 and the fact that Naaman cannot receive this from, from Elisha I think really speaks to why pride is such a problem. And it speaks to the importance of having humility and the importance of approaching life, being open to receive truth um, no matter where it is. Now, hear me correctly, like, this isn't like everyone's truth, like, I'll accept it. Like, have wisdom and discernment, of course. But um, on the other hand, at the same time, don't live your life in such a way where I can't hear something that somebody is telling me because they're two generations older than me. Don't live your life in such a way where I can't receive something from somebody because they're generations before me, because they have a different background, because the river's dirty because I have this house and you have that house, because of whatever the life circumstances that, that God has brought you into versus the one of the person across from you. We have to be ready to receive that and not to live our lives with pride so that we can let those truths come into our life. We read here after this episode where he runs off. Um, thankfully, this man has brought with his entourage somebody that can actually speak truth into his life. Let's continue on the story here in verse 13. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you have not done it? 
How much more then when he tells you wash and be cleansed? So, Naaman, thankfully, is hearing things now because some you know, prophet living in a hut, living in Israel, has told him, you should just do it. And so he receives it. And he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times as the man of God had told him. And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. So he responds to his his doesn't really say what he is, buddy, servant, whatever. And he finally agrees to do the thing that the prophet told him. He goes in and he dips himself. Now, we don't, I don't know what it is. The Bible, like, narrative sometimes doesn't really spell it out. I don't know if he dipped, toweled off, and then, thank goodness, he had 10 changes of clothes. Um, that might be the significance of the 10, 10 clothing. Who knows? Um, We don't really know what that is. We just know he did it. He dipped himself seven times, came out skin as smooth as that as a baby boy. Um, And he's, he's cured. Verse 15. Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. And he stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world Except in Israel. And so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives, whom I serve, I will not accept the thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. Now we move into verse 17. And um, as you can tell from the title, we did pride. So let's do the dirt. All right. If you will not, said Naaman, verse 17, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other god but the Lord. And may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. My master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he is leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also. When I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. And so we read here, there's, there's a true conversion here. This, this foreigner, this non-Israelite from the kingdom of Aram has come down to Israel and he has received healing of his physical disease. But what is he now declaring with his words to everyone around him. He now knows that there truly is no God like the God of Israel. And he understands now that all these other gods are false gods. The true God is the God of Israel. And so then he wants to reward Elisha, right? Again, he went on his camping trip, bought a lot of money, a lot of shekels, um, lots of clothing, and he wants to gift Elisha and refuses to accept anything. And so his response is, okay, if you won't take my money, then let me take a whole bunch of dirt, two meals worth of dirt. Now, I have no idea how much dirt that is. It's got to be a lot, right? And 
and this is, a, I think, a part of the story that's that's very confusing. Um, and I, I won't flesh this out completely, but maybe just to kind of clue you in on what's going on here and, and kind of come to a landing on what the dirt's all about. Um, when you read this, this is a, a ancient concept that looks, you know, very weird to us. Like, why would he want the dirt? And and for us, it's weird. But for the ancients, this is a, a well-understood concept and idea of why we, you would want to bring dirt. It actually kind of goes back to the Tower of Babel, and you kind of trace it through. Um, and, and why he wants dirt, the Bible actually tells you earlier, like, what's going on here. Why is dirt significant? Back in the Tower of Babel, if you know the story, we made a ziggurat. Lots of people were trying to reach God. And then God says, I ain't having it. Um, I don't know, lightning bolt, something happened, and boom. Tower's down, people are scattered, and he starts to, to, to move people to different parts of the world, and they settle down all these different areas. We read in Deuteronomy 32 that when God was scattering these people, he actually started to create the borders and say, these people group here, these people groups there, those people groups there. And that scattering happened, the ordering of the nations started to come out, and we start seeing all these people in different parts of the world. In Deuteronomy 32, we read about how all these people were portioned to different parts, but to the Lord's portion was who? The Israelites. And there's this idea in ancient times that this, the, the God of Israel and these pagan gods, they almost like, just like the people were scattered, they kind of lived in the different areas or the different you know, countries and within those borders. And, and for the Israelites, that was Yahweh's people. That was God. And so there's this idea when you read about this, you got to think, um, in their minds, where does God live? Where, where is the God of Israel? He's with his people in these borders. That's where he lives. Now, obviously, we understand as scripture reveals more and more, and especially David reveals, this, uh, reveals to us in, in the Psalms, um, where can you go and the Lord is not there? Nowhere. God is everywhere. And so this concept is understood by the ancients, but you know, David helps us understand, and we know very clearly that, that God is in all of creation and he is in everywhere. But this request from Naaman to take this dirt, two mules worth of dirt, and to bring it with him to where he lives back home, what he's really trying to say is, I want to bring the earth or the land that your God dwells in back with me to the, the nation that I live in. Now, the Bible doesn't really reveal why he wants to do this specifically. Um, is he going to make an altar? Don't know. Um, is he going to make you know dirt? Don't know. Um, is he going to like use this when he kneels down next to you know the king in the the foreigner's temple? Um, that's not revealed to us either. Um, but the one thing that does seem to be clear is that there's this desire. To, to bring something with him of this experience back home so that he can remember what has happened and he can remember the experience and remember what God has done for him in the Jordan River. 
one of the things that I think is true is, is just the importance of, of making sure our faith is in the right thing. The story of Naaman, it's a story of faith. Um, Naaman's putting his faith in God and his promises. Um, Pastor Dave led us through a uh, Sunday school lesson this morning on just talking about faith. And he gave this great story about um, faith being kind of like this rope that you attach to the side of a mountain that you're using for rock climbing. And, and that rope is only as good as what you anchor it into. And your trust in what that rope can do to you also will impact um, maybe how you climb that rope. Um, maybe if you have low faith in that rope, then maybe you'll go up only five feet with a pad underneath you. Um, but if your faith is, is strong in that rope, you'll climb very high. And I think you see a lot of that too here in the story as Naaman starts to put his faith in God and his promises and starts to put trust into, um, into the God of Israel, you see that conversion in his life and that change in, in, in all his perspective, his worldviews and everything. And one of the things I think is true of the dirt and the reason why you bring that with us um, to a foreign land is just how important it is to, to continually remind yourself of the things that God has done and the promises that God has delivered on and, and the promises that God has for your life. Where do we start to get in trouble in our faith? And where do we start to get in trouble with our walk with Christ? It often happens when you stop remembering those promises. It begins to happen when you start to forget the things that God has done for you. It's fascinating. Every single bad thing that you read about in the Bible, not everything, but a lot of things, um, especially in the Old Testament, they typically begin with the phrase, so-and-so had forgotten the Lord. Or the beginning of Exodus starts, right? And Pharaoh, I don't know who Joseph is, I don't know who this God is. And judges the cycle of sinfulness that we see time and time again is because a new generation has come up and we have forgotten who the Lord is and what he has done. When you start to read all the bad kings of Israel and the bad kings of Judah, what is true for every single one of them? They have forgotten who the Lord is. And, and God, you know, he knows you. He knows me. He knows how important it is for us to remember what God has done in our lives, remember the promises, and remember the things. The dirt that's being brought back to the nation is, is kind of like that reminder, that thing to help us remember who God is and what he has done, and especially for Naaman, remembering what God has did for him in the Jordan River. In a moment, we're going to celebrate communion. And the reason why communion is so significant and so important is because what are we doing every time we eat the bread or drink the cup? What are we declaring? What are we reminding ourselves? Reminding ourselves of what Christ did for us on the cross. Reminding ourselves of this new covenant that we live under. Remembering is important. And in your walk with God, when you find yourselves in times of, of wandering, when you find yourselves in time where you're just losing faith or you're kind of going off the, the wrong direction, 
Um, not always, but a lot of times it's because we forget what God has done for us and what God has done for you. So we're going to close in prayer and we're going to enter a time of communion. But my encouragement to you is, is to make communion a time to remember what the Lord has done for you on the cross. Remembering the sacrifice of Jesus. Remembering how he shed blood for us so that we may live in his grace and receive forgiveness for our sins. The story of Naaman very much is, is a story that helps understand the gospel. Everything in the, 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 the Old Testament, everything, it's just leading up to the gospel. Being healed um, and being, being redeemed and being restored and pointing forward to just this, this, the, the gospel. It's what all the Old Testament is doing. And so as we enter a time of communion, it's supposed to be a, a time when we remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. And I think when we do that properly, and when I think we put that in our heart and write it on there, we will never be shaken from our faith. And we will trust in God and, and his promises for us. Amen? Let's close in prayer. God, thank you so much for everything you showed us in Second Kings. Lord, I just pray now that uh, as we enter into a time of communion, we would just remember your promises to us. And we remember that your faithfulness on the cross, Lord, has redeemed us and has restored us. Lord, thank you so much for everything you revealed to us. And I just pray, Lord, that um, we just enter a time of worship through communion where we can just focus on what your son has done for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.